Welcome to Headliners, the podcast. This is the paper review that won't put you to sleep. You can catch us live every night from 11 on GB News with a panel of top-notch comedians going through the biggest stories hitting the next day's papers. But don't worry, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Headliners. I'm Mark Dolan and welcome to Headliners, your first look at tomorrow's papers, always in the company of two top comedians. This evening, the brilliant Darius Davies and Simon Fanshawe, OBE Esquire. He makes you add that bit. Uh, gentlemen, we'll get started and let's have a look at tomorrow's front pages. And we begin with the Daily Mail. Tough on China, Mr. Sunak. Pull the other one. Rishi Sunak's get tough stance on China was last night called into question by his Tory leadership rival, Liz Truss. It seems the gloves are off. Next up, the Daily Telegraph. Sunak takes aim at Truss over China's influence in universities and tax cuts get economists' approval. Of course, Liz Truss's uh, plans are to uh, cut taxes. And a top economist writes in The Telegraph saying this is the way to go because it will boost growth. Um, how about this in The Independent? Fears thousands wrongly told to pay back benefits. Nearly 15,000 people say they've been wrongly ordered to pay back universal credit payments. Uh, the figure is in the region of half a billion pounds. The Guardian next, greatest staffing crisis in NHS history, leaves patients at risk. Tory plans for asylum, cruel and immoral. And Ukraine six months on. A local says, I've been here since the first day of the war. It has been like hell. Financial Times, uh, Britain and France to take board roles in Utstelat, one web tie-up. We'll get a translation for that headline later in the programme <laughs> and a fact sheet. Labour in business charm offensive as Starmer senses chance amid Tory strife. Daily Express next. Leadership favourite pledges to end Whitehall's grip on Britain's future. Trust my tax breaks will boost Britain. And TV Jan, very shaken after mugging TV legend Jan Leeming, uh, mugged whilst on holiday in France. Luckily, she kept her handbag because she's tenacious and she's now recovering uh, in her uh, accommodation whilst abroad. The Metro next. NHS is on its knees. Worst workforce crisis in its history, picking up on that story in The Guardian. And last but not least, The Daily Star. Good news or bad news, depending on where you're standing. After record 40 degree centigrade heat, four more roastings are on the way. Heat, wave after wave. Sizzle sees UK turning into a desert. And those are your front pages. <laughs> Phew, what a scorcher. And that's just Simon Fanshawe. Let's have a look at Monday's Mail and the Tory leadership candidates really setting out their stalls. Yeah, well, there's two headlines here. Tough on China, Mr Sunak. Pull the other one. And then I'll send more migrants to Africa, says Liz Truss, as the Tory leadership favourite promises to expand refugee policy and protect UK's borders. Um, here's the point. So Liz Truss comes out and she says, um, you know, soft on China, says Mr Sunak. Well, I'll tell you that in April... Boris Johnson, her great hero, apparently, said, I am fervently Sinophile. 
You know, what do you do? China's one of the biggest economies in the world. I think it's the second biggest, actually. So what do you do? Of course you trade. Soon, soon to be number one. And then she lists various things. Because China brutally cracking down on peaceful democracy, da-da-da. Illegally occupying the South China Sea. After such a litany, I have one simple question, Mr Sunak. Where have you been over the last two years? You may recall that last week, Liz Truss said, neither Labour nor Tory governments have delivered the required growth. I say, only one question to you, Miss Truss. Where have you been? She was in the cabinet. She was financial secretary. You know, she was chief financial chief secretary of the treasury. Absolutely. I mean, uh, really, and all this idea that tax cuts going to deliver growth. I mean, Patrick Minford, who was Thatcher's greatest economist, blah blah blah, says it's absolute rubbish. So I don't. I mean, I just I'm fed up with this. I really am fed up with these people just hurling donuts at each other. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you you do wonder, don't you, uh, Darius, whether the gloves are off now because the contest between these two has been polite hitherto, but the, the battle is now being played out on the front pages. Yeah, well, it's an easy, it's an easy uh, you know, topic to go for. Like, what are you going to do about China? There's nothing you can really do about China. There's, you know, it's a lose-lose situation. So she knows that she can say, what can you do without saying it's what It's like you, you as a comedian, right, doing gigs for horrible promoters. It's like, well, am I going to work or am I going to not work? Yeah, exactly. Like, you've got to do what you have to do. And China, like you say, soon to be the number one economy in the world. So obviously you've got to trade with them. You've got to deal with them. They're a very powerful country. And it's the balance, isn't it? I mean, you've got to trade. You're absolutely right. And then you've got to worry about security and whether there's, you know, they're harvesting information. I get all that. Everybody gets all that. It's just stupid to say, what are you going to do, Mr Sunak? It's like playground stuff, I think. Yeah, I mean, what do you think about Simon's point also that it's actually hard for either of them to criticise the other because they've both been sat in Cabinet. We've got this thing called collective Cabinet responsibility, which means everyone in the Cabinet signs off on all policy. You know, you'd need to be a figure like Penny Mordaunt, who wasn't in the cabinet, to have an advantage at this stage. I, mean, I feel they're cancelling each other out somehow. Yeah, I mean, it's like they're arguing over. They've both got the same position. So what's the point of the argument? It makes no sense um, to me. I don't know. I'm not particularly interested. I think, yeah, China. You know, if you're going to deal with them, you need to call them out on their what they're dealing with, the, the wiggers and... All I was going to say was it's that old... It's the old joke, isn't it, how much they hate each other. It's the old joke where they say, you know, they point across the commons and they go, that's the enemy. And the, and yeah. the old hoary old politician goes, no, no, that's the opposition. That's the enemy. Yeah, you know, you'll say, yeah. right. Your own, your own yeah. lot, you That's know. right, that's Terrible. right. And I just wonder, before we move on to the next story, Darius, you're an accomplished performer. Who do you think's a better performer between these two? Who's got the X factor, do you think, Sunak or Truss? I like, I like, I like Sunak. I like him just because uh, he gave me a grant <laughs> during, during the COVID. <laughs> done for more for me. I, I, I like I like the. Cut. You've been bought basically. Yeah, I've been bought. I've been bought. But I like you know. I think he looks good. I think it's good. Be good for Britain to have a what, be the first Asian prime minister. It will show that you know what actually the Tories look with the despite what Labour say. This is a this is would be the first diverse the first uh, party to have you know female pr uh, prime minister the first party to have a first Asian prime minister. So I think it'd be good. I like Rishi Sunak um, and he gave me money. So all good for me. Uh, yes, I mean, finally on this one uh, for you, Simon, they're trying to outright wing each other, aren't they? And well, Rishi, Rishi Sunak did an interview earlier this week and he used the word Thatcherite four times in one sentence. In one sentence? Yeah, which even answer. Margaret Thatcher didn't manage that. That's, you'd go, I, 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 we, we, we. <laughs> but it's, it, yeah, they are trying to write, but I mean, what that, under, what that identifies is this ludicrous way in which, you know, these leaders are chosen. Both parties get chose, choose their leaders by the members. And I know that sounds like a good idea, 
There's not more than 200,000 members of the Conservative Party. I don't know how many Labour members there are. It's, you know, it's bonkers. We're choosing the next... We're not choosing the next Prime Minister. I don't know why the debates on television... It's nothing to do with us. We don't get a chance at all. So they're just appealing to them. Well, yes, that's the issue, isn't it? And I always think that MPs are probably the best judge of who should be leader because they're the ones that need to keep their job and win the next election. They're always going to back somebody that can achieve power rather than... The, the, the best sort of spiritual leader. I mean, didn't that happen under Labour that the grassroots voted for Corbyn because they just loved his ideology, but they didn't think for a second, let's get someone who can win? No, but there was no one in the country who thought, he looks like a prime minister. He mm. sounds like all those policies, that'll be... Excellent. That's how MPs think, but not how the Absolutely. grassroots think. Absolutely, it was bonkers. And, and briefly, Hoofy has got the X factor, Sunak. I agree with you. I mean, I think that, I mean, I, it, it feels to me like you, you've got a grown-up I Sunak, and I mean, I'm no Conservative, but you've got a grown-up in the room. On the other hand, I guess if one was a Labour member, you'd want Liz Truss, because actually, I think it, that'll be a disaster. <laughs> oh, no, uh, lefty Fanshawe gives his support to Sunak. The kiss of death! <laughs> it's over, Rishi! It's over, that's it. Uh, now we've got the uh, Telegraph, Monday Telegraph, and uh, pretty, pretty bad news for those trying to get abroad, Simon. Well, it is. British holidaymakers should, quote, shun France if they're not welcomed. So this is a former minister. Of course, you read down the story and think, who is it? Who? Of course, it's John Redwood. Do you remember John Redwood? Yeah, John uh, Redwood. Uh, he's a, a Thatcherite figure. He was actually, he's still an MP, one of Margaret Thatcher's economic advisers in the, uh, the mid-'80s, very critical of Rishi Sunak. Well, famously, of course, he was in the Downing Street Policy Unit during the miners' strikes. That begins mm. to show you exactly where it was. But the famous one was when he was Secretary of State for, for, for Wales yeah. in, the mid, in the early 90s. And he went to a Conservative Party conference, in a Welsh Conservative Party conference, and he'd omitted to learn the, the Welsh National Anthem. So he stood on the stage and tried to mime to it. And I do commend it to viewers, just to have a quick look. And I think he was asked enough. if he'd been to Wales and he sort of fudged it and said, well, I like Wales. Right. Yes, Wales I like Wales, aren't they, those big country. fish? But he, he was known as the Vulcan, so you feel he's not, he's not really good at... I mean, he's abroad already, so you'd think he'd be more in favour of going abroad. He, of course, is holidaying in England. Mm. Right, too. As he mentions it. Monday's Guardian now and proposals for profound change for NHS hospital visits, Darius. Yes, yeah, so The Guardian leads with charge patients for hospital stays to help fund the NHS. So uh, Professor Stephen Smith uh, from a think tank has suggested that the ministers should bring in charges of four to eight pounds a night to cover people's uh, hospital now, stays. Now, is that more expensive than a Premier Inn or not? Well, that's what <laughs> I was thinking because, listen, what's going to happen is I think eight pounds a night is a pretty good deal because people are just going to come to London for the weekend pretend to be sick, and then they've got a place to stay. Brilliant. <laughs> That's what I would do. Um, would Lenny, Lenny Henry pay eight quid a night to stay in a, uh, St Thomas's or something? Well, you know, he likes the... He likes the yeah, probably £49 a night. But the thing is, he's based this on... This is based on the system in Germany. That's what he said. So the guy who wrote this or suggested this, said, this is based on the system in Germany. And when he says based on, it's the same way another comedian based his jokes on mine. It's just completely ripped off and stolen. Um... <laughs> But yeah, £8 a night, it's a way to increase revenue. But they, I mean, within the NHS, there's so much. It's like, you don't need to charge the patient. This goes fundamentally against what the NHS stands for. There's so much wastage, so much middle management. Mm. Like, even this, this kind of, this think tank is probably, someone's paid for that from NHS money. Yeah. And like, let's get rid of all these middle guys and let's get to what's, let the medical people run the hospital. Well, I agree. Let's, fewer managers, mm -hmm. fewer drugs, I would suggest, 
more preventative medicine, improve public okay. health, and more no, doctors more and drugs. nurses? More drugs. All really? Time. You go, you're you're <laughs> pro-drugs. We think we're talking a different type of drugs. Um, yeah, no. Imagine what, is... what, you, what you mean by that. I've had a very sheltered upbringing. And, and chocolate. That's right. I don't know any of, any of those things. I can't even have strong tea. But Simon, uh, what do you think about this? Because uh, we also read this week that the NHS is costing every household in the country £10,000 a year, and now they want to charge us for an overnight stay. Well, they don't want to charge for an overnight stay, and most people would say this is a ludicrous idea for the reason that you said the whole point about the NHS, that although we do pay for dental treatment mostly, uh, it's free at the point of delivery, and that's fundamental. But there's a, but there's a, there's a dafter thing that underlies this. The point about the NHS, the success of the NHS is not the number of people who are in the hospital, it's the number of people who don't come to hospital. So if you think the idea of making more money for the NHS is to charge people to come into hospital, the incentive is to keep them in hospital, not get them out of hospital. It's a completely balmy idea. You know, it, it won't help people to move out, and that's the big problem at the moment. In the hospital near where we are, in Brighton, you know, they have... You know, over 100 people at certain times who simply should not be there, but they can't move them anywhere because there's nowhere to move them to. So the idea of suddenly charging people, that's a completely perverse incentive. It's also very regressive if you're charging as a tax, if you're charging everybody eight or ten quid. Well, and then this bloke says, oh, well, you can means test it. Well, if, you do, if you want less bureaucracy... Yeah. <laughs> don't introduce but, but, yeah. the means test. But it's know? interesting because they said, oh, well, you know, we do it already for dentistry, but look at everyone's teeth. Yeah. That would be people's health, where they'd just be dying in the street. So that, that, that is the real Wuhan. Wuhan people drop dead in the street. So I, I think it's ridiculous. Uh, there's, like you said, there's, there's things that can be done to streamline the NHS, make it function more effectively. But charging £8 a night uh, is, is not yeah. the way forward. I mean, Plus, the people that are going to be in hospital, they're going to be ill. They're not going to pay. They won't have the money to pay it anyway. Yeah. Although it's not that much. You know, maybe I'll just move into our sport instead of... Well, I'm thinking the same thing. I, I reckon eight quid a night, uh, you'll never get me out. Do you know yeah, what I mean? It's, it, I, I, like, I like grapes. Weekend. I like nurses. <laughs> I like Lucasaid. OK, uh, look, moving on. Uh, let's uh, have a look now at uh, Hungary in The Guardian. Um, Darius, tell me more. Uh, yeah, so this is Viktor Orban, the Hungarian politician, and he sparked outrage with an attack on race mixing mm. in Europe. So he's, he's given a, a speech and he's lashed out against the mixing of European and non-European races in a speech. And surprisingly, this didn't go over... <laughs> didn't go over well. I, mean, I, for one, am shocked that saying <laughs> the mix of European race mixing is race mixing wasn't a good idea. But he's come out, he said, this is, you know, racist shouldn't mix. And this, he, is, this is pretty dark stuff, isn't it? I mean, uh, slightly racist, but whatever. Anyway, they, <laughs> the MEPs have obviously condemned him, but he is, you know, he's far right. And he's, that's, that's what he's, the manifesto he's running under. And he's got a lot of support from the people in this country. He's won the president, he's been, well, he's been there for four terms now, so. Is he saying that Hungarians shouldn't fall in love with French people? I mean, how, how strict well, is this uh, uh, protocol? I, I, I think it's it's based on, um, you know, the Dulux color chart. So when you go down here, you get to a certain <laughs> shade, and it's right. like, this is how strict it is. But at the moment- well, It could be not like Farrow and Ball, like sort of, you know, apple whites. So you can get very specific, some of those colors, uh, I've don't got, they? I've got no clue what Farrow and Ball is. Cocoa Brown. 
None of don't know what that is either. No. <laughs> what, what tulip, is tulip red. I think there you've you lost go. it. I think you've lost don't it. just go on saying colours. I think you've completely yeah. lost it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I'll keep digging. We, we, What's we, interesting about this, I suppose, is that, that what Orban's claiming is that the that Hungarian, mm. you know, is an ethnicity and it's it's a race, and that's his pitch to the Hungarian people. So he's a, he's a Hungarian nationalist. So I, I looked up the figures. They're Magyars, basically. That's the whole point about the Hungarians. And what happened was there were quite a lot of them. And I understand in the Middle Ages, something like 80% of the land that was covered was covered with Magyars. But then what happened was it shrunk for various reasons. The Ottomans attacked and all those kind of things. So by the 19th century, apparently, it was only 25% of Hungarian. And then it expanded again and the population grew. Mm. But basically, there's 17 million Magyars, 9.3 of them live in Hungary, 3 million of them sort of Ukraine and, and Croatia and Romania and all the bits around Hungary. And all the rest are sort of spread through the world. So good luck, Victor. Yeah. Stopping, you know, your average Hungarian in the streets of New York the horse falling bolted. in love. I think the horse has bolted. You yeah. Know? Are you allowed to sleep with the horse? No, probably not. That would be uh, that would be mixing, wouldn't it? How about this now? All parents know summer holidays are unbearable. This one from uh, Monday uh, in uh, which paper is it, Simon? Have you got it here? Guardian. It's got Monday's Guardian. This is one of these stories that, that is a bit terrifying. If children could be radicalised over the summer break. The mm. Met Police warned parents. The significance of this is that. Um, a third of the cases that are reported to prevent are reported by schools and not by parents. So there's a gap when kids are not at school. So that's one thing. The second thing is this is not normally done publicly. They've never done this before. And De De Detective Superintendent Jane Corrigan has written, uh, she's the Met's Counterterrorism Command, and she has written to parents saying, you know, look, these are the signs, be careful. Mm. But the thing is, it says, one of the signs apparently is kids becoming obsessive or expressing extreme views. Most children are now going to be reported to prevent, are they not? I mean, is that not most, what you... Most GB News presenters are going to get reported. <laughs> They'll certainly be reported. But do you not then get... You know, when you're a child, I mean, that's just what you do, isn't it? It's in Correct. the job description. The other thing which I Definitely. thought was quite interesting in this thing... Um, well, there was a couple of things. One was that um, apparently terrorism threats, they've moved from evolving from groups that have got very clear positions to what they call the lone actors. In other words, these balmy people who are, who are, you know, kind of a bit balmy and just sort of pick and mix from wherever. But the thing that I did really get was that Islamic State put out a video last year... Yeah, I saw this. That had, a ..that had a sign language interpreter. They're trying to penetrate the deaf community. And I was thinking, excuse me, I mean, this is where I work. I do not want to go into competitive pitches for NHS diversity work, thank you very much, and find that ISIS is on the list of agreed suppliers. Thank you very much. So get your tank off my lawn. I, uh, I, I, ISIS, uh, they're very, very uh, reliable. They're very on it. <laughs> Always on time. Listen, <laughs> Little that, uh, press no, release, slideshows. You've, you've confused ISIS with the Islamic State. I believe they're different. Um, but, you know, they should be commended for using a sign language, an interpreter. You know, that's... Well done, then, we yeah, say. Yeah, amazing. Yes. And they've got great production value, so... They're, they're bang on it, but yeah. yeah. They're pretty woke, aren't they, ISIS, these days? Yeah, pretty well, woke. Orban won't like them because I'm sure there's lots of race mixing. And <laughs> um, yeah, what, what a story. But yeah, it's children spending a long, lot of time online now, six weeks on their own so they can be indoctrinated. So it's, a, it's an issue. It's a fair point, isn't it? This is not a confected fear. Oh, here. no, this is a real fear. And yeah. also what's interesting, too, is the balance between London and out of London. In London, it's much more about Islamic terrorism. Out of London, it's much more about far-right terrorism. Yeah, but, but what is interesting is that uh, of all the people that were arrested, only certain, like a small number of them, yeah. with like five of them, were actually 
put forward by the police to, to be charged because they realized that a lot of these are just keyboard warriors. So they made the distinction between like children posturing online and children actually, you know, making, you know, tangible threats. So that was an interesting Goodness gracious. story. There you go, all these terrible websites. Bring back Vape Station, all is forgiven. <laughs> That's it for part one. Coming up, the Pope goes all James Bond. The inevitable robot uprising against humanity has begun. And how do you degender a Latin language? Good luck with that. See you in two. I'm Mark Dolan and you're watching Headliners, your first look at tomorrow's papers. Tonight in the company of the marvellously talented comedians Darius Davies and Simon Fanshawe. Monday's Telegraph now and I was under the belief that popes were led by higher ethical principles than this, Simon. I had a lecture at Sussex University, obviously a spine-bending hotbed of communism. But he did these Marxism lectures. They were fantastic. He was called Istvan Metzoros. He was very, very funny. He was Hungarian. But um, he used to open his lectures on Marxism with the phrase, the Pope owns most of the brothels in Rome. And when I get to the end of these lectures, you understand why that's not a contradiction. The point about the Vatican is it's a huge property company. Yeah. You know, and what they've done here, Pope Francis authorised bugging of London-based broker over property deal leaked documents. So basically what happened was the Pope and the Vatican wanted to invest in a building in London, a development in, in London. And this bloke called Raffaele Mincioni, um, an Italian fund manager, is now being accused of, and I say accused and alleged and all those other things, because there's a court case going to happen, um, where uh, he's supposed to have ripped them off. And the bugging is in order to find out whether he did it. But the key thing is the Pope didn't ask the British judges for approval. But you think, he's the Pope. Doesn't he just ask God? I right. mean, who needs the British judges? Thank you very much. I'm... Yeah, God is the ultimate conveyancer, isn't he, really? He's, he's the ultimate, uh, if you believe in him, he's the ultimate everything. So why bother with judges? So does this characterise the Pope as basically sort of Donald Trump in a big house? Well, to be fair to the Pope, once he discovered this, he decided to put a stop to it. And so but apparently they lost 140 million quid on this thing, which is why they're a little exercised by the whole thing. And they did stress that this did not come from donations from the faithful. Yeah, sure. I wonder where it did come from. I mean, for me, it's a sorry indictment of uh, the Catholic faith. I mean, if you believe in God, what do you need someone bugging them? Just ask God and he'll yes. tell you what's happening. So why... Exactly. He why sees everything, doesn't you're, he? You're the Pope. If anyone can speak to God, say, God, what's happening? But it's a sorry indictment. No faith in God. Well, definitely. And of course, I mean, this reminds you, as Simon was saying, how rich the Catholic Church are. Yeah, they're loaded. And uh, it's gold as well as property, isn't it? Wow. And the other very thing fancy which I like, outfits. And the, the Pope-mobile's worth a few quid. Well, I always, I've always liked the dress and the silk slippers and the hat. But the, um, the, there's a nice tabloid bit in here. Is this bloke who's accused by them of, of, of diddling them once dated yeah. Sir Paul McCartney's ex-wife, Heather Mills. <laughs> you think, OK, my father danced with Lloyd George. Well, exactly. <laughs> Crumbs. There you go. Well, whatever happens, whoever committed that crime is going to hell. On to Monday's Mail now, and this one's got to make you proud, hasn't it, Darius? Yeah, so the Daily Mail reports that Iran has enough uranium to build, quote, one, if not two, nuclear bombs and is already, quote, a nuclear state. Ex-US diplomat warns. Um, so... I, Personally, I've been hearing about this for the last, I don't know, 20 years, that Iran is one week, two weeks away from creating a, 
an atomic weapon, a nuclear bomb, and they've got enough uranium to it's do it. It's a bit like HS2, isn't it? But just a little <laughs> yeah. more dangerous. Exactly. I mean, for me, first of all, even if Iran are enriching uranium, we don't know for a fact that they're definitely going to try and build a nuclear weapon with it. We don't know. I think, for me, the time to get worried about Iran and nuclear weapons and uranium and stuff is when they start importing DeLoreans into the country, right? When they bring them and they're building flux capacitors, because that's what I think I would use the uranium for. But it's funny because the Robert Joseph, who is the uh, American diplomat, um, who's warning uh, about this, about Iran creating, uh, creating these, or enriching uranium, so it goes on to say, that uh, this Robert Joseph, he, he was a chief negotiator to Libya in 2003 and is credited with convincing Colonel Gaddafi to give up his nuclear weapons program, right? Mm. And this same person is trying to convince the Iranians to give up their nuclear weapons program. But I, for one, know that if I saw what happened to Gaddafi, I'm going to keep my nuclear weapons or my aims to get them going on because it didn't end, end well for him. So this is like, this story, I think I've read this so many times down the years that we're this close to getting nukes, but it's yet to happen. And I yet don't believe to happen. it. to happen. And, and, and let's hope it, uh, we wait longer, don't you think, Simon? No, I well, don't. I want it today. <laughs> you want Iran to have one now? I'm Iranian, so yeah. Oh, are you? Yeah, yeah, my dad's Iranian. You're, uh, oh, well, they're Iranian. Uh, loves yeah, Iranian. My, 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 yeah, my dad. It took you a while to tell us that. Oh, no, my dad. That came at the end oh, of the thing oh, rather than... I think you should have started out going, I'm Iranian and therefore... My dad's Iranian, my mum's Ali G. Now, GB News viewers know <laughs> all about who I am. So, no, the only thing I thought was interesting, it was all that's supposed to happen at a conference um, of this thing called the... Uh, Free Iran. The NCRI. It's the National Council of Resistance of Iran, which uh, sounds pretty groovy. I mean, this guy runs this thing and his wife, there's a man and a wife who run this thing. It's based in France and Albania. I think that's pretty good, you know. Apartment in Paris, you know, summer house on the Adriatic. But their manifesto is great. It's like universal suffrage, secular country, non-nuclear, quality of Iranian women, and end the death penalty. And you think, make this guy leader of the Tory party. That'll do. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That sounds like leadership to me. Uh, speaking of leadership, um, can we talk about this rather interesting story in The Independent, Simon? And it's all about the robot uprising. Well, this is completely bad. Independent, chess robot, grabs and breaks finger of seven-year-old opponent. What happened was this kid's paying this robot. As the, yeah, we've got the video. Oh, we've got the video. And the, vo the robot moves, and apparently the kid moves too quickly, and, um, and the robot goes in for the kill and, you know, <laughs> grabs this kid's finger. And as the official said, um, a fracture could not be avoided. Uh, deeply worrying. It's redolent of that scene in RoboCop when the demonstration RoboCop annihilates half the office. Yeah, that? well, they're deeply worrying because this comes just weeks after Google AI has become sentient. So if the, if the chess robot gets this anger over losing to a seven-year-old, imagine what will happen when you try and turn them off. They're going to they're gonna go Ed 209 on us. Reminds me of Boris Johnson knocked over that 10-year-old kid in Japan. Do you know, it's that kind of... It's like Kevin the Pothead's older brother at school. <laughs> it was an absolute horror, it's you true. know. Break your conquer and then your feet. That's right, robots that bite back. Be afraid, be very afraid. Someone that rarely features in the news now. Uh, <laughs> what, <laughs> who, are we, who are we talking about? Elon Musk, Darius. Yeah, this comes to us from The Sun, and Elon Musk has had an affair with Sergey Brin's wife before billionaire co-founder filed for divorce. Okay. So he's cheated on his... Well, he's cheated with Sergey Brin's wife, um, and they filed for divorce, so... You know, this is this is a lady who's 
gone from a guy with 95 billion to the richest man in the world with 240 billion. So... I don't is, think there's any suggestion she's going to marry him, though. Although that no, would, but it would be a smart strategy. And also, is, is, money, is it weird? Do we know about the timeline of this adultery? So the, so, so, the, so the story is they were actually separated, but still living together. Ah. We, but well, hold on, though. That's outlandish. She's, she's not got a two-bedroom flat in Hackney that they're sharing a mortgage. It's a £95 billion Google owner. Move out. Move out. Why is it? Well, she probably needs to use his tumble dryer or something. No, 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 no excuses. The bro, the bro code was broken, but you know. But wait I, a minute. Now, can we also ask about this bro code? For, for who is who is this? Uh, the, the, we know Elon Musk. So. so, so, so his, so it's Nicole Shahan is the wife or soon to be ex-wife of uh, Sergey Brin, and he is he is the co-founder of Google. Right. So he's got ninety-five billion. So the man's very rich, right? He, they're good friends. They were good friends. Elon Musk apparently used uh, to regularly crash around their house. They were separated yet living together, even though 95 billion. And then Elon Musk made his move. But what's funny is Brin is said to Sergey Brin is said to have ordered his financial advisors to sell his personal investment in Musk's companies. Like I'll show you. I'm not using any of your companies. So I'm pretty sure right now Elon Musk is using Bing as his search engine. Uh, and do we know whether they are uh, uh, in an ongoing relationship, these two now, Musk and... No, there's no evidence that they're... And, and do that. we know when this happened? Uh, this, yeah, we do know when this happened. This happened uh, in December of, of last year. Blimey. And, so it, and then they passed fresh. the divorce. Yeah, so it's pretty new. In Miami. At Art Basel. And after that, apparently, Musk went down on his knee in front of Sergey Brin. Oh, good. I wonder where that story was going. Okay. And asked... <laughs> and, <laughs> Pause for Fam comic, for comic effect uh, to ask for, to, to ask for forgiveness. Oh, is that he right? He wasn't branching out yet again. Uh, uh, can you tell me about the bro code? Does it exist? What is the bro code, and should we follow it? What are you asking me for? I'm a gay man. Yes, but isn't there a bro code yeah, a among bro gay code men as well? Amongst gay men. Well, I think it's changed now. I think there's a bro I think there's two types of people, and it's irrespective of your sexual orientation. I think that some people are like me, who are just completely vanilla, and all you have to do is read me "Wind in the Willows" and lick me ear, yeah. you know, and are faithful forever, and that's it. And then there's a bunch of other people who just think, you know, a blade of grass is privacy, and why not just go for it now? And I think that's true of heterosexuals as well as homosexuals, is it not? I don't know. <laughs> I think the code which, is... Which, which, which camp are you in? Uh, I, think, I think the code is if you, you don't go with someone that you're friend, like your ex's friends or something. But are you in a permanent oh, I, relationship I, I, where, I, you're, where you're Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go off with my friend's ex or something. But would you go off with anybody? No, I would I'm no. married. I'm a married man. But there you go. You see, me uh, too. So yeah. I wouldn't. What about well, you? Well, I've got this thing which is with my male friends, uh, their girlfriends or their wife is, is my sister. That's how I do it. I treat them like they're just my... Except I, I fancy my sister, so it's really... Complicated. <laughs> I, I fancy his sister as well. It's <laughs> Freud. <laughs> Mark's sister's hot. One for the uh, based linguist now out there from the Telegraph, Darius. Tell us more. Buenos Aires is sued over ban on gender-neutral language in schools. So this comes to us from the Telegraph. And this is, this is crazy because the Argentinian authorities in Buenos Aires are now trying to stop teachers in the local schools from changing the Spanish language. So it's, as we know, Spanish is a gendered language by its very nature. So it's la mesa, or, um, al taco, whatever it might be. Right. But now I'm saying los amigos, they're, they're changing it. So, so you know how they have Latin and Latinx? 
Latin's a gender neutral language. Now in Argentina, these teachers are teaching their kids, instead of saying, hola chicos, hello kids, they're saying, hola chiques. So it's like, it's no gender. So the, the Argentinian authorities are saying, this is unacceptable, stop you know, butchering our language and our history. And they're going in and they're suing these people. And these people are fighting back and saying, no, we want to be able to use any language we want to use and not use gendered language. And actually, for me, I know when I was studying GCSE Spanish, this would have been a great thing to have because I used to get gender wrong all the time. Like, how can a table be female? Yeah. I don't know if I've made this sense. Is, no, it's great news for lazy students. Yeah, who great don't, news don't want to do in German, der, die, das, which is he, she, and it. Yeah. or la and le in French, exactly, which is exactly. he or she. And, and I, I, I'm glad in some ways to hear that the, 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 the woke madness is not exclusive to the, to the West. I think what's annoying about this too is this thing about Latinx, and you read mm. constantly that actually it turns out that people who are Latin, i.e. in America, Hispanics and so on, don't like uh, Latinx because they don't think it means anything. You know, they just think it's nonsense. So... It's not popular. You know, it's the imposition of a language, usually by white middle-class university-educated types who think that they're being kind of <laughs> inclusive and whatever. And yeah. again, it's that idea that inclusive somehow means all the same, whereas actually what inclusive means is difference. Yeah. And we wouldn't talk about inclusion if we weren't talking about difference. And so the whole point about things like... And, of course, sex and gender. I wish people would use sex and gender uh, separately. Well, yes, and, and um, it's interesting how people who talk a lot about inclusion are strangely exclusive if the inclusion is not on their terms. Yes, you've got to think like this, speak like this and behave like this, and if you don't, we'll exclude so, you. So I just spoke earlier to, to uh, somebody called Ollie London who has transitioned race. So you know about transitioning your gender. You're born in a male body, you feel female, you transition. Uh, but he felt, he's a British guy, he felt Korean. And he's received abuse from sort of trans activists for being ridiculous, changing his gender. It was like, well, sorry, changing his, 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 his race. It was like, well, you can't have it both ways. You're either inclusive to people's journey or you're not. Well, it's either based on what you feel, an identity, mm. or it's based on material reality. Right. And, and therefore, if it's, if, it's not, if it's just based on identity, all bets are off. Then all bets are off, and it seems to me... I mean, there's a very interesting uh, American historian called Adolf Reed, who is older... His parents are definitely old enough to have wondered whether they should christen him Adolf. Yeah, but set that, that aside. <laughs> Funny enough, his son is also called Adolf Reed, so clearly there's a different... some different tradition going on in that family. Once is very unfortunate, famous. twice... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, he's a very, very distinguished emeritus, uh, black emeritus professor in... in and he wrote, uh, Do you remember Rachel Dolezal, who was the woman who had lived as black for a long time and then her parents appeared and went, actually, it turns out we're white. I do remember that, And yeah. she wasn't uh, black. And he wrote this essay called Rachel Dolezal, Bad, Caitlyn Jenner, Good... Question mark. In other words, exactly exploring that. It's really, it's really excellent, actually. Fascinating stuff. There we go. Well, look, lots more to come. Uh, next up, we'll be discussing Paddy Pimblett's powerful after-fight speech at last night's UFC, bioweapons, and why skeletons are now problematic. See you in two. I'm Mark Dolan, and you're watching Headliners, your first look at tomorrow's papers. Tonight, in the company of the excellent comedians Darius Davies and Simon Fanshawe. The UFC was in London last night, and one of its stars gave an incredibly powerful message after his fight. Uh, let's take a look. I want to I wanna dedicate this fight to little baby Lee. 
little warrior. Like, more of a fighter than any of us will ever be. But also, I woke up on Friday morning at 4am to a message that one of my friends back home had killed himself. This was uh, five hours before me weighing. So, Ricky, lad, that's for you. But... There's a stigma in this world that men can't talk. Listen, if you're a man and you've got weight on your shoulders and you think the only way you can solve it is by killing yourself, please speak to someone. Speak to anyone. People would rather... I know I'd rather me make cry on my shoulder than go to his funeral next week. So please, let's get rid of this stigma and men start talking. A deeply inspiring message uh, straight after his fight, Simon. Uh, he's, he's absolutely right. If you think that, that... Can you imagine that 20 years ago or even 15 years ago? You know, that change, just bringing mental health right out of the, the closet, I suppose. It's just amazing. I, I mean, I, I've known nothing of this guy. I know nothing of Ultimate Fighting Championship, By the way, he UFC. Didn't, he didn't look like he'd been in a fight, did he? No, when you watch them fight, to be frank, it does look like two gay men having sex. I mean, <laughs> right. it's the most peculiar sport. They seem to just hug each other and then roll around a lot and then try and pin each other down. I think I may be giving away too much now. But, <laughs> yeah, know, are, we, are we keeping you? Are we keeping you, <laughs> yes. But it is the most peculiar sport. But, no, I mean, to be really... It was an extraordinary speech and you, there's nothing to add. It's absolutely brilliant because also, you know, it's this working-class sort of tough martial arts guy, you know? It's a great message to other men. His, uh, his nickname is Paddy the Baddie, but, you know, last night he was definitely Paddy the Goody. What, what, what a message to, to send out there. Um, and what a performance after finding out five hours before the weigh-in and being that composed, going out, winning. And, you know, he didn't have to say that. He didn't have to dedicate that. He didn't have to make that speech. So, yeah, props, props to him. Um, great, you know, good words. Great advice. Absolutely right. A hero inside the ring and out with it as well. We all know that society has moved from the communal to the individual, and so now it seems to have weapons, Simon. Yes, this is the most peculiar story. A member of the US House Intelligence Committee warned that bioweapons are being made that use a target's DNA to only kill that person. I mean, one thing is note to the Daily Mail um, uh, headline writer, to only kill that person. I think that's a split infinitive. So I just make that point. We're in Star Trek territory there, I, aren't we? I do think. This is bizarre. I mean, it's the, it, I think you read it and it's, frankly, you begin to think this is a bit of hyperbole because basically what he's saying is that these weapons can be used to target specific crops that, you know, troops would be eating or specific animals that would then provide food mm. or specific people and targeted as things. You sort of think to yourself, yeah, this is probably possible in a theoretical sort of way, you know, highly targeted assassination programmes and all that kind of stuff. The thing about this stuff that always gets me, though, is that 
You know, he's saying that people are signing up to these genealogical sites and just giving away their DNA. He rather inadequately puts it, all you have to do is spit in a cup and then send it to whatever that site's called. Oh, is it spit you're supposed to send? Oh, my yes. God, I'm in so much trouble. I, I think you'll find that's another oh, clinic. Blimey. It's a different <laughs> clinic. But the thing that always gets me about this whole, you know, two and eight about information is people go, oh, the government wants ID cards or the NHS wants to have our health information. I think, That'd be really useful use of health information is to plan healthcare. We were talking earlier on about how you make the health service. Google turns up. People, oh, no, have my information. No, just you're, take you're it so now. You're so right. Amazon, take it. No, no, do please. You know, if I buy a wheelbarrow, come back at me with wheelbarrows for the next 16 uh, years of my life. I know. I mean, you give away everything you the are so whole right. time. Our own double standards are outrageous. Very briefly, there's a book called Data is Power, and there's a chilling anecdote in it about the Second World War. Uh, the Dutch were very proud because they had full detailed medical records of all citizens. And the French had a big thing about freedom of information and, and privacy and that sort of thing. Uh, and I guess a more sort of modern republic, if you like, post-revolution. So when the Nazis went into France, they couldn't identify who the Jews were because there wasn't that detail in medical records. They went to Holland. They had everything. Yeah. They had, you know, all, all of the, you know, genealogical, religious, cultural, racial, the lot. And, um, and they could therefore and they to could this target day, those communities. In, and to this day in France, I know from my, you know, other bit of my life, is that today in France you still can't collect information on, on, on race. Yeah. So there so you go. It's obviously, it, it must well, be it, an echo of that. Uh, clearly, it's clear, you know, clearly there's a problem with the control of information. I absolutely get it. But the idea that people freak out about the government well, well, collecting information when they forget that Google and Amazon and the rest but here's has the controlled thing. us. It's not just the Ancestry 23andMe that have kind of been harvesting your data. If you've done a PCR test in the past two years, 10% of those tests, they've taken that DNA, they were sent... Uh, and genome tested, so they've got your DNA. If you've done one of those PCR tests, oh. they have your, your, your DNA from that. And apparently China, uh, using this genome sequencing and the DNA testing, they can make specific bioweapons to attack only Caucasians. Um, so uh, use that as you well, that's a cracking story. Um, let's power through if we can. We've got five stories left in as many minutes. Um, let's have a look at Monday's Mail. And skeletons are racist now, Darren. Yeah, don't give skeletons a gender or categorise their race as this contributes to white supremacy. So anarchist archaeologists uh, are saying that when we find a skeleton, we shouldn't say whether this was an African skeleton found male skeleton found and died this way. We can't say what gender they are because we don't know how that person who died 200, 500 years ago in Africa self-identified, even though they have a spear and they have a crown and they have all the other garlands. And of course, you can also check in the DNA of the yeah, bones. There. Because yeah. uh, it's an inconvenient truth that uh, biological sex is in every cell in the body and, and indeed in the bones. And of course, it depends what you're trying to collect. If the data that you're trying to collect relates to sex, well, then you need to sex the skeletons. If you're trying to collect some kind of data on notions of gender identity in the past, well, collect that. But these are different kinds of data. Don't confuse the two. Well, I had no idea that skeletons were so damn bigoted. You learn a new thing every day. One for the food connoisseurs now from The Guardian, Simon. This is absolutely fantastic. This is puzzle of prized white truffle finally yields to science. They have been able to breed black truffles, but they have failed over the years to breed white truffles. These things sell 
at nine grand a kilogram. So, you know, I mean, if you want to snort something cheaper, <laughs> then go for it. Are we but keeping they have you? They've, yeah. cultiv <laughs> they've cultivated 26 white truffles. But what is fun about this, I didn't realise that what you do is that fungi have a relationship to trees. And what you do is you kind of match the fungus to the trees. So what they've done is they've produced these oak trees which have an ability to produce white truffles. And that's how they've done it. Good. And the other word I learned today was mycologist. The study you're, you're what, ecologist? Mycologist, okay. and it means the, it's the person who studies fungi. You're, you're, you're enough about your ecologists and <laughs> all your nether regions. You know what I mean? Um, look, we'll uh, move on now to Monday's Guardian and one for the teetotalers, Darius. Gen Z for zero tolerance, why British youth are turning off booze. So 16 to 24-year-olds are stopping drinking, mm. but what they're not saying is they're actually their recreational drug use is actually going up. So they probably just don't like the taste of alcohol, but they do like the effects of ecstasy and other Class A narcotics. But yeah, they're not getting as drunk as we did, but also they're slightly more boring and stay at home and they're on their phone. So not no surprise to me, but they are taking, they are more, they are more amenable to taking drugs. That's what this story says. So that is the story. Um, is it good or is it bad? Uh, you know, is it a blessing that they're not drinking because we know about the, all the societal and health issues around drinking? Or is it worse? Is it bad because the alternative to alcohol is, you know, illegal narcotics? I, I think... You know, if you had kids, what would, you, would you rather that they were gaming and getting high or down the pub drinking beer? You know what? I, I don't mind either. I wouldn't mind either. A bit of, a bit of both. If they're not, they don't want to drink, they don't want to drink. I think that's a problem to do with maybe actually the alcohol industry need to kind of refresh their own product line and make it more, more appealing. And also the, the whole nightlife industry needs to be more appealing to younger people. Yeah. So it's too expensive to go out and like... Oh, and the pandemic has now killed the nighttime yeah, it's industry, hasn't it? So it's, but, you know, in the, in the comedy clubs that I play, when I gig to a lot of young, younger people, they're drinking. And they're drinking a lot. <laughs> they're on, they are. Well, they're having a good time watching yeah. you. Uh, what do you think, Simon? What's better, booze or drugs for our young people? I don't know about that. I've never done drugs, really. I mean, despite previous comments. But, I mean, I've never got into them, really. But I've always thought with alcohol, the thing that I can't bear about Britain is it's the only country in the world where you go, what did you do last night? We got pissed. That is apparently a thing that you do. Can we say yeah. that? Yes. We're going to say pee. Well, we, we, we can, and I'll tell you why. Well, the reason why is because Simon is one, of those, uh, he's one of those edgy comedians, you know, and uh, he, sails very, he sails very close to the I love he's, that. He's that close to getting cancelled. The, the young man who hasn't bothered to cut his hair comes in and tells me, I know. tells me it's, how it's, to tell. It's a bit, Simon it's, broke off come regulation. It's ironic. Um, <laughs> well, look, uh, have I got two more for you? I think I do, actually, yeah. OK, how about this, uh, Saudi Arabia... And would you live in the desert, Simon? This building, let me just try and describe it. I looked at a picture of the thing. It's 75 miles uh, long. It's two parallel buildings. It's got a, it's mirror clad. It's got a series of environments in between, like vertical gardens and such like. The Shard is 1,016 feet tall. The Empire State Building is 1,450 feet tall. Each of these two buildings is 1,600 feet tall. And it's the mad Mohammed, well, he's not mad, but I mean, Mohammed bin Salman, 
is trying to build this in the, in the, in the, you know, in the Riyadh desert or whatever, and it's part of it. It's called the Mirror Line. But the thing that I love is that apparently he's got this other thing called the Neom City or something, which is going wrong the whole time, and it keeps on you know, being uh, various sort of uh, things that it's running into. And workers are claiming there's a culture of fear in telling him that things aren't quite, quite going to plan. And then you look back and you think, actually... 2020, remember, he arrested three people with the crown prince and a couple of princes. Remember. But in 2014, you may remember, he locked 500 people up in a hotel in Riyadh. Do you remember this? I do remember that story, And these yeah. were various people. The purge, as it was called. Mm. I'm not surprised no one's going to say, actually, I think this idea is a bit mad. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the issue is uh, with, with these structures in the desert is just supplying them with energy, isn't it? That's the but main headache. The big headache is that it's penile envy, isn't it? I mean, it's ludicrous. It's, well, it's I don't men. suffer from that. No, but it's men deciding that the, what they want is something long and thin in order to show how powerful they are. Mm-hmm. This, is, this sounds like the episode of The Simpsons where Homer tries to make a car. And so, yeah, that, that makes sense. <laughs> it's, not, it's not happening. Um, yeah, neon megacity. Plus, I don't think there's enough Indian migrant workers to sacrifice themselves to build that city. Good. All died in the Qatar World Cup. Well said. Can't disagree. Can't, can't agree with you more. I've got to say that, uh, and I do believe you. So uh, let's move on now to our final story. A heart warmer, uh, one of Scotland's icons. Greyfriars Bobby. Now Greyfriars Bobby, you may know. Uh, Greyfriars Bobby, mystery of Scotland's most loyal dog is solved. You may remember the story. Greyfriars Bobby was. Uh, he was the. the uh, I can't remember the name of the policeman who. who uh, he was the pet of John Gray. He worked in the Edinburgh Police. He was a terrier, went with him absolutely everywhere. When John Gray died in 1858, Greyfriars Bobby visited his tomb every day until he died, which is 14 years later, and he was the most loyal dog in London. And there's some mad... You know, these people, honestly, haven't people got better things to do? They've decided... Oh, by the way, most loyal dog in Edinburgh. In Edinburgh. He he said London. The Scots will be furious. Yes, but the thing is that uh, he's a Sky Terrier, and if you look at the sculpture, he's a Sky Terrier. These experts have now just said he's a dandy Dinmont. And you may be pleased to know that... There's a lot of those in Edinburgh. There's a lot of those in Edinburgh. You may be pleased to know that that comes from a novel called Guy Mannering by Sir Walter Scott. And it was he was a character and then he was modelled on the bloke who first bred the Dandy Dinmont. But here's the best fact of all about this story, is the Dandy Dinmont is the only dog that is entitled to wear an official Scottish clan tartan. The Duke of Buccleuch, who is the head of the Scott clan, gave it to Sir Walter Scott in 2015. Uh, We learn and we laugh. Uh, Let me tell you that Simon Fanshawe will be in Edinburgh celebrating Greyfriars uh, Bobby's uh, amazing legacy. He's at the Assembly from the 19th to the 23rd of August. Uh, Thanks to my brilliant guests. What an outing from Darius Davies and Simon Fanshawe. Are you doing Edinburgh as well? I'm also in Edinburgh. Get the plug in. We're doing the non-disclosure agreement show. That will do it. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Headliners, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode again. And if you enjoyed it, leave me a nice comment. Speak to you at the same time tomorrow for the paper review that's never boring.